Good morning. I am really excited to get to be back with y'all. Uh, school is kind of a drag for me, and so getting to come and do this is like, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, like Scott said, I created this series, and so as our first sermon, before we kind of get into that, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to this series. But more than that, I want to give you an understanding of what my heart for this series is. As I was going through thinking about what do I want to do this summer, I came up with a mission. And my mission is that you would encounter God. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, yeah, that should be the point of every sermon series, right? That should be the goal of every preacher of every sermon to bring the congregation into an encounter with God. And so as I was thinking through this summer, thinking through what I wanted to focus on, thinking about how to refine our thoughts toward God, toward maybe guiding you into an encounter with God, I came to a realization. And through my time with the Word, it was revealed to me that oftentimes... The church comes to you and society comes to you and it says you need to be strong. You need to bolster yourself up. And your reputation needs to be good and you need to be viewed as a strong person and you need to be viewed as a person with, without weaknesses. And when your weaknesses pop up, you need to hide them. Because people don't need to know that you're weak. But when we look at the Bible and when we look at the stories of all the characters we see throughout Scripture, when they encounter God, it is not in a moment of strength. It's in a moment of weakness. And when we encounter God, we don't encounter God in the midst of our strength. We encounter Him in the midst of our weakness. And that brought me to this idea of desperate, this idea of desperation, the idea that you have reached the end of your rope. You have reached a point where there is nothing you can do, and the only way for you to be saved is for someone else to step in. And the stories that we're going to look at are stories of people who have reached the end of their rope and are utterly powerless to save themselves. They are not strong, they are weak, and yet in the midst of their weakness, they meet God. And so, our kind of underlying scripture for this sermon series is going to be 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10, which says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking. And this is Paul saying, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I, then I am content with weakness. With weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul encountered God in the midst of weakness. And we will encounter God in the midst of weakness. And I want to warn you. This series, if you honor it will probably hurt at some points. Because it will require you to look at yourself and ignore your strengths and focus on your weaknesses because only in your weakness can you find God. So we're going to get into our first sermon. Our first sermon is one that I think applies to almost all of us. It's desperate for a purpose. Every sermon is going to be desperate for something, and this first one is desperate for a purpose. I think all of us want to feel like our lives matter. 
We want to feel like our lives mean something. And so we want our kids to remember us when they get older. They want us, we want them to remember us in a good light. Or we want people to look back and see our work ethic. Or see something about us that makes us seem good in some fashion. And the world comes to us and tells us that in order for our lives to matter, we have to be some kind of hero. We have to go, look, at, look at the media that we produce. The people that matter are the ones that go and do great things. The lives that matter aren't the lives that just live out mundane. It's not the school teachers. It's not the babysitters. It's not all of these normal people. It's the doctors. It's the people in the military, which God bless them. Thank you for their sacrifice. But we look to them and we call them heroes. And the world comes to you and it says, in order for your life to mean something, you have to go and be a hero of some kind. And that raises a problem for us. Because oftentimes, our lives aren't heroic. We go through life, we get a normal job, we raise a normal family. We're an average parent We're an average athlete. We're averagely built. We're not anything special. We're just normal people. And so this idea that we're supposed to be a hero comes to us and it makes us feel like our lives mean nothing. And then on the other end, when the call to be heroic comes, oftentimes we fail. Because we're not built to be heroes. We We can't stand up to the challenge of perfection. And so the heroic call that comes to us, we fail it. And then again, our life means nothing because we can't live up to being a hero. And so we're stuck in this perpetual cycle of my life not mattering because I can't be a hero. And we're going to get into a character today who I think struggles with this idea. This idea that he needs to be a hero, but that he's not qualified to be a hero. But if he's not a hero, his life doesn't mean anything. Today we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6 and 7, the story of Gideon. But first I need to give you a little bit of context to this story. Anytime we get into the book of Judges, you need to be informed of the Judges cycle. The Judges cycle is simple. Throughout the entire book of Judges, God is faithful to the people of Israel. He has brought them into the promised land, and they are living amongst the promised land, and they are living well for the most part. But the people always are unfaithful to God. They go and seek other gods, or they go and disobey the commands that God has given them. And every time they do that, God wants to teach them a lesson. And so he allows a foreign nation to come in and oppress them. And the oppression is typically brutal, and the people cry out to God and say, why have you abandoned us? Are you not going to save us? And God, being merciful and faithful, raises up a judge to come in and save them. And then the people just abandon him again. And it goes on and on and on. The people rebel and God punishes them. Then he is merciful and saves them. And then the people rebel again. And what we are getting into is the story of a people who have rebelled. And we're about to get into Judges 6 and 7. And this story is the Israelites have rebelled against God. And God has allowed a nation called Midian to come in and oppress them. And something about the Midianites that is important to note is that they were one of the particularly brutal nations that oppresses Israel. 
They come in and they do not just kill and they do not just loot. No, they come in and they kill and loot and destroy. They salt the ground. They burn the crops. They obliterate everything. And Israel stands no chance to get them against them, so they are terrified. Look with me in Judges 6, verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. These people have been pushed out of their homes. They aren't living in the fields. They aren't living where they're meant to. They go into the caves and they go into the strongholds and they hide because Midian is brutal and they are afraid. And God sends them a prophet. And the prophet comes, he's an unnamed prophet, and he comes and he declares a message to them of the faithfulness of God. How God raised them up out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and has been faithful and yet they have turned away. And the prophet challenges them, do not be afraid of these other people's gods and yet they revolt just again. They, they continue to be afraid of the other gods of the other nations that are coming in and oppressing them. And this is where our story begins. Look with me at Judges 6 verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I don't know if you know much about threshing wheat, but I'll give you a hint. You don't do it in a winepress. Wheat is meant to be threshed on a threshing floor which is a big, open, kind of concrete slab where you throw the wheat up and the wind flows freely through and carries away the chaff and the heavy kernels fall to the ground. But Gideon is so afraid of the Midianites that he's hiding in his wine press, a place where the wind does not flow freely. And so he's having to work harder. He's having to beat the kernels out of the wheat. He's working hard, but he is afraid and terrified. And in his fear, the angel of the Lord comes to him. And he says, the Lord is with you. And he gives him this, this command. And Gideon is kind of like, whoa, you're saying the Lord is with me, but are you not seeing what's happening? And the angel, just like the prophet, reminds him how God has been faithful. And then he gives him a call. In verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Gideon, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so Gideon has this big, this big call to go and fight the army that is oppressing all of Israel. So he does something that I think is wise at this point. He says, I'm going to at least make sure that this is God speaking to me and not some other deity. And so in 6.17, Gideon says to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And so he goes into his house, and he gets some dough, and he kills a lamb and gets the meat, and then he creates broth. And he comes out, and he places them before the angel. And he pours the broth on the dough and the meat, and the angel lights it on fire. Easier than it ever could have been. He couldn't have built a fire. The angel just, poof, it, it goes up in flames. 
And so Gideon is confident now that this is actually God who is speaking to him. And the angel comes to him. And he gives him a call to go and tear down an altar in his town. That has been built up to Baal. Baal is one of the pagan gods. And Gideon has no choice but to listen because this has been proven that it is God. But he still finds a little loophole because he's still afraid. And in Judges 6, 27, it says, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So instead of going in the middle of the day and saying, Hey guys, I'm Gideon, I'm tearing down this altar, he goes in the middle of the night and destroys it. Yet the men still find out that it's Gideon. And so they come to his house and they challenge his father and they say, send Gideon out here, we're going to kill him. And his father, the man who he was afraid of, defends him and says, let Baal contend for himself. If he's so powerful, let him punish my son. And so Gideon has been protected by God for the first time. And you would think that would teach him his lesson. But not quite. So God again comes to him and says, all right, you tore down an altar. That's good. Now you're going to take down the entire nation that is oppressing you. And Gideon says, okay, that's kind of a big, another big deal. So I'm going to have to test you again. This one is not so wise. At this point, we're going from discernment into doubt. And Gideon says, if you will save Israel by my hand, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay a fleece out on the threshing floor. And when I come out in the morning, if you make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry, I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. He goes to bed, and the Lord does as he challenged. And he says, wait, 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 wait. I just need to, ta- I just need to test you one more time. Just to know, just to know that you're going to save Israel by my hand. And so he says, this time, make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet. And God does it again. And so finally, Gideon has to face the music. He is going to war. He's going to fight against the Midianites. And so he calls this big army to come and gather. He calls people from all of the tribes of Israel. And they come and they gather and they they go to Mount Gilead and they're preparing for war. And as if this challenge is not hard enough, God comes to Gideon in Judges 7 and does the following. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. An army of 32,000 was not enough to beat the army of the Midianites. And yet God comes to Gideon and says, you need to tell anyone afraid to go home. So they flee, and he's left with 10,000 people. Now, you would think that is enough, right? You think, okay, we still don't stand a chance, so thanks, God. Now, Now we're really up a creek. And God comes to him again and says, I need to reduce the army again, because these people are so stubborn that in any situation where they have any feasible chance of winning, they will glorify themselves and will not glorify me. So again, he gives him a challenge. And the army ends up being reduced from 10,000 to 300. Now Gideon is reasonably afraid, again. 
He's about to go into battle against one of the largest nations, one of the most powerful nations, against their entire military with 300 men. That doesn't seem very reasonable. And so God comes to him and he says, if you are fearful, go down to the camp and listen to what they have to say. So Gideon takes his servant and he goes down and he listens. And he hears this prophecy. A man in the, in the camp had a dream that a piece of bread rolled into the camp and knocked over a tent. And another man interprets it saying that symbolizes that today the Lord God will give us into the hand of Israel. And so Gideon has again for the fourth time been reassured that he is going to be all right. And so he finally goes and he gets his army and they're going to battle. And at night, they surround the camp. The camp is in a valley. And they get on the surrounding ridge. And they, light, they blow their trumpets. And they break their pots. And they light some torches. And the Midianites think they're being attacked. And so in the chaos and in the confusion, God turns the Midianites' swords against themselves. And they utterly destroy themselves. And a few of them flee, and Gideon's army chases them down and wins the battle, and the day is won. Gideon is the hero. He saved Israel, right? And so the men of Israel come to him in 822, and they say this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. Also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And I imagine in this moment, Gideon takes a second, and he thinks back to the threshing floor. Because they come to him and they say, you have saved us. And I think he thinks back to the story of the threshing floor in Judges 6.15, where he asked God, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? And he lists all of the reasons why he shouldn't be the hero. And I think in that moment, he finally gets it. These people come to him, they say, you have saved us. And he remembers, and he asks God, how can I save? And I think something snaps, and he looks back at the story, just like we're going to right now, and he sees this, that the main actor in the story is God. Go on and go to the next slide. Or not. In Judges 6.14... God says to Gideon, do not I send you. And in 6, 6, there we go. And in 6, 16, God says to Gideon, but I will be with you. In 6, 36, Gideon talks to God and he says, if you will save Israel by my hand. He says it again in 6, 37, that you will save Israel by my hand. In 7, 9, God says, for I have given the Midianites into your hand. In 7, 14, the Midianite says, God has given us into their hand. 7, 15, the Lord has given us into their hand. 7.22, and the Lord set their swords against one another. See, the fact is, Gideon is not the hero in the story. God is the hero in the story. And every time we see Gideon doubt, and every time we see Gideon be afraid, it just becomes clearer and clearer why God chose him. Because throughout this entire story, the whole point is that Gideon is not the hero. God is. And as we look at our lives, I would challenge you to face the music and face the reality that as you look at your life, you are not the hero in this story. God is. 
And you don't have to be a hero. And your purpose doesn't have to be great. Because in the end, you couldn't live up to being a hero anyway. Why do you think God chose you? And the world comes to us again and it says, you have to do something powerful for your life to matter. You have to be a hero for your life to matter. But the simple fact is, you don't have to, your life doesn't, you don't matter because of what you do. You matter because the hero says that you do. Your life doesn't matter because you go and do something amazing. It doesn't matter if you're in the military or being a doctor or if you're a mom changing the sheets for your son or a daughter changing the sheets for your parent. It doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or what you do. Your life is so much more than what you do. Why? Because God says it is. And the heroes saw you as worth saving. So your purpose is not caught up in what you do. Your purpose, your purpose is caught up in who you serve. So what is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify the hero. And you can do that in any profession. You can do that in any stage of life. No matter what you do, what you are meant to be doing is giving praise to God. And you can do that through anything. And so as we go into this week, a moment will come where it will feel like things don't matter. You'll look at your work and say, does this even make a difference? You'll look at your life and say, do I really even matter? You'll get all these things, and the enemy will try to come to you and say, if you don't do anything amazing, you're worthless. And in that moment, I would challenge you to find somebody and tell them what God has done for you. It doesn't have to be someone who's never heard the story of Jesus. It doesn't have to be someone with you. You can call them. You can text them. But in the moment when the enemy attacks you and tells you that you're worthless and tells you that you don't matter, glorify the one who was willing to die for you and who declares perpetually that you matter no matter what you do. That brings us back to our closing verse and our theme verse of the series. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast in the fact that I'm not strong enough. I will boast in the fact that I'm not the hero, because I'm never meant to be the hero in the first place. But I serve the one who comes and bolsters me when I'm weak, and who comes and says, you matter even when you don't do anything that seems crazy, even when you're not the hero. Boast in your weakness. Boast in the moments where you feel like nothing you're doing matters because the one who says you matter, you matter looks at you and says, it doesn't matter what you're doing anyway because it's about me. It's always been about God. 
Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God chose Gideon for a reason. Not because he was strong enough. Not because he was good enough. Not because he was the right man for the job. But because through his life, God would be glorified. Let the same be true in your life as we go into this week. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your word and the fact that it perpetually speaks to us today, even though it is ancient, God, and the fact that it comes into our lives and it reveals things to us. God, I ask that you would help us to seek you. And God, I ask that when we seek you, we would find you and we would glorify you. Help us as we go into this week to find peace in the reality that we don't have to be the hero of this story. And to glorify you for the salvation that you give. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.